Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. GameBridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Today, it's great to have Irvin Yalom on the podcast. Yalom is Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and author of many internationally best-selling books, including Love's Executioner, The Gift of Therapy, Becoming Myself, and When Nietzsche Wept. He was the recipient of the 1974 Edward Strecker Award and the 1979 Foundation's Fund Prize in Psychiatry. His textbooks, Inpatient group psychotherapy and existential psychotherapy are classics and have influenced me personally deeply. Uh, Dr. Yalm lives in Palo Alto, California. Hey, thank you so much for being on the Psychology Podcast today. You're welcome. When I announced on Twitter that uh, you were going to be my podcast, everyone was freaking out. You know, this is this is such a such a delight. You're you're such a, a legend in the field, and I really want to capture today, um, if if anyone can capture the essence of a person or of a life. You know, I want to see how much I can capture that today. And and uh, uh, you're really you're really truly special. So, um, do you mind if we start a little bit in your childhood? Because when I was looking into that. It, I, I read that you grew up in a segregated city in Washington, D.C., in a poor black neighborhood, and that you said mm-hmm. that life on the streets for you were perilous. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood there and how you took refuge in books? Well, um, I, 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 my father had a little grocery and liquor store. He'd come over from a Bosch-Stetzel in Russia named uh, Stelz, um, and I lived there the first 14 years of my life. 
Uh, there were no other white people there except for a few store owners, like the barber a few doors down was white. He always he always greeted me, hey, you boy, every morning. Um, and um, I had to walk several blocks to my school. I was just on the edge of of the school, so I, I biked or walked to school. Uh, I played with some of the black children in the neighborhood, but my parents wouldn't let me allow, wouldn't allow me to bring them into the house. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the library. Um, went there weekly, took home all the books I was permitted, maybe six or eight, I don't remember. Uh, did a lot of reading uh, at that time. And, and uh, my uh, my parents were hard workers. They, they were in the store from uh, eight in the morning to uh, eight, at, eight at night, midnight on, on Fridays and Saturdays. So they had a very hard life. Uh, and uh, that's, that's where I grew up. At 14, my mother decided that she wanted a better home. She went out and bought a home. My father never even saw it till he got there. And, um, and we moved into a nicer section of town, uh, which uh, where, and that was where I met my wife at, at the age of 14. Mm. Yeah, so you were in the chess club, right? You were a big nerd in school, is that right? And you, you, right? I, the only thing I did with my parents that I really enjoyed and loved was Sunday mornings playing chess with my father, who was a who was a pretty good chess player, and I I did that every morning, every every Sunday. That was a real treat for me. Hmm. And when I got to um, when I got to high school, there there was a chess team playing other high schools, so I I was a member of that team for three years and played the, the last year and a half for so after a sport. Right. And around 14, 15, I mean, you, you described yourself as a bit of a shy uh, kid, but you, you said when you, you met your wife at a party, can you kind of tell me when, about that? You said you went right up, something came over you, like you were extroverted all of a sudden or something. Well, I met someone, one of the, at uh, the bowling alley, he's kind of one of the bowling alley bums there, and uh, I enjoyed gambling with him and playing and bowling, and he said, there's a party over Marilyn Koenig's house afterwards, you'd like to come, I didn't know who that was, but I, I went with him, it was a few blocks walk from the bowling alley, and there's a huge mob of children trying to get in the front door, and he said, let's go in through the window, so he opened the window and I crawled through. And the house was very crowded, but I saw Marilyn across the room. Uh, I thought she was very beautiful. She's tiny. Uh, she's under five foot tall, never weighed more than 100 pounds. And went up to her, and I, uh, uh, I told her, I just crawled through your window. I couldn't think of anything else to say. <laughs> and uh, we, I got her phone number, and we had a, my first date. It was something called the Hot Shops in Washington, and I could get her to later. And over our hot fudge Sunday, she told me that she had not been to school that day. She skipped school. And I said, you skipped school? How could you do that? Because what I really liked about her was that she was so much in love with books like me. She said she read Gordon with the Wind and it kept her up all night long. And she used to go to, go to, uh, to, go to school that day. And I was, I was absolutely floored by this and uh, someone who loved books as much as I did. Uh, and uh, I never let go of her after that. You were married more than 65 years? 
Is that right? Yes. Or 65 years. I I married, um, uh, let's see, I was in, I was in medical school. So yeah, at least 65 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's rare. I went to medical school at George Washington. She went to Wellesley. Um, I had, uh, I'd heard, I'd, I'd looked into it. There was an open spot in, uh, at Boston University Medical School. You usually do not transfer medical schools. But I, I uh, heard there was an extra spot and, uh, uh, and they accepted me at, at Boston University to, so I could be near Maryland. And uh, so that, that's, uh, that's why I had one year at GW and three years at BU. Ah, I didn't know those, those details. Uh, so you were also, you know, at a very young age, I guess death was uh, something that you saw up close, right? Both your parents' deaths, you were present at both of them. Is that right? They're quite unexpected. Yes, I, I was. I was present at both my parents' death. That's right. Um, and my, I was present also at my father's uh, severe coronary when I was a teenager. Um, and um, we we all had to wait till the middle of the night till a physician came, uh, Doctor Manchester. Uh, he was uh, he was very nice to me. Rubbed my hair, took care of my father, uh, relieved some of his pain. Um, and my father lived for a few more years, although he was uh, very limited in what he could do. But I think it was at that point that I decided to become a physician. I'd like to give to someone else what the kind of relief that he gave me by appearing in that house and being kind to me. Did you have a fear of mortality? Uh, did you did, did these preoccupations concern you as a child? Like, do, when did they start really coming to uh, to the fore in your consciousness? Preoccupations about death, not not for some period of time. Um, no, I I I I wasn't aware of that uh, very much at at that time. Uh, although I. You know, I was with my with with my father when he died, um, but no, I, I it was later on in life that I had a lot of turns about about death. Roughly, when in your career did you pivot to? You know, I'm trying to. I want to see the origin story of the founding of this existential psychotherapy field that you uh, have uh, contributed to so much. You know, what. What were some of the, you know, why, like, why you were, why were you, how did you become interested in those issues? Well, um, first of all, I was, a, I was a, a massive reader as everything that I could find at that point. Uh, when I started, uh, when I started my, my residency at Johns Hopkins, um, I, I, th I think that was when I read into Rolla May's, Rolla May's book. On existence. Oh, existence. I have that on my shelf somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I read that from cover to cover, and it, I was absolutely persuaded. If I were going to do what I wanted to do in this field, I, I had to learn something about philosophy. I had zero courses in, in college. I took nothing but pre-med. So uh, as a as a first year resident, I, I enrolled in a basic philosophy course at GW and I went three evenings a week uh, to to introduce myself to philosophy. 
So that was that was that was my real beginning of that. Um, and then coincidentally, Raul may move to California, and you were able to get psychotherapy with him, right? Well, what happened was that I got drafted. Every every uh, MD was was you have to sign if you want to go to medical school. You have to sign a statement saying you will go into the service afterwards. So I went for two years. The army sent me. <clears throat> at first, I was going to Germany, and then the last moment, a spot opened up in Hawaii that they needed someone. So that was a great blessing for me. So I went. <clears throat> so I went to Hawaii then, and um, after that, I had planned to go back to Washington, but my wife leaned on me pretty heavily, uh, and um, uh, she, she well, both of us wanted to stay in Hawaii. It was lovely, and and San Francisco was as close as we could get to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So I applied for uh, positions at UCSF and uh, at Stanford. And went to Stanford first. I liked that so much. I didn't didn't continue. I got offered a position there uh, at Stanford, so I uh, I took that position. I also had a ticket to Illinois. I was going to go visit Carl Rogers. Is another place to stay as to see, but I never took that trip because I got a very good position at Stanford. And when I was at Stanford, I I had a tremendous amount of freedom. I could do what I wanted to do and. Um, I began starting being interested in very in group therapy. And one time I saw a woman there who had metastatic breast cancer. And she came to see me and asked me if I could lead a group of patients like her. Uh, and I, I found her very persuasive. And, 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 I, and I did. And I led this group for many years. Everyone in the group died. New members came into the group died. But uh, eventually, it stirred up a lot of death anxiety for me, uh, for a, a young young resident to be seeing this much this is much death. And I learned that Rolla May had just moved to California, and so I um, I started seeing him, and I it was very helpful to me. Uh, I met with him about a year and a half, I think. I I was helped by that. Afterwards, I became close friends with him, uh, very close friends, and we. We met often. I, I was I was with him when he died, as a matter of fact. But he did tell me a few years later that although he had helped my death anxiety, I had made his a lot worse. Mm-hmm. He was about 22 years older than I was and was facing these issues far, far below before I did. Um, so no, that's, that was my first contact. I started doing other groups, groups to breed people also. Uh, during during that time, I led groups, all sorts of different groups. Then, and eventually started writing a textbook about group therapy. Well, you did. You know, the theory and practice of group psychotherapy is a classic. Why do you think that book did so well? Um, I don't know. I spent a lot of time with it. I'm a pretty good writer. I, I wrote it six different times. Um, I try to get a lot of stories in there. As stories well as a lot in there. Uh, maybe it was the stories that uh, that the, but the last edition was uh, that I did with a co, the co co therapist, a co leader named Mullen Lesh, who's the president of the Group Therapy Association here now. But it was something like eight hundred and fifty pages and a couple thousand references. It, it, it's a backbreaking test to do that six times. Although he did a lot of the hard work, heavy lifting this last time. 
Well, you have said, I have a quote from you here. You said, I have an insatiable thirst for stories, especially those that I can use in my teaching and writing. You know, so what led up to the writing of Love's Executioners, which was an international bestseller and, uh, and had really riveting stories about your therapy practice? Like, why did you decide to write that book? Well, I don't remember that. I don't remember how I started doing that. Mm-hmm. I wish I did. Uh, undoubtedly, I wrote it when I was on sabbatical. I took advantage of every possible sabbatical we could. Went to some far-off place. Uh, once we went to the Tavistock Clinic, when I was writing the group therapy book, I went there because of the group program there. Other times I went to desert islands. Uh, I like to do underwater scuba diving and spear fishing. Uh, so uh, and Marilyn, my wife, she um, she was a Francophile. I uh, got her PhD in French and German literature. So she always chose to go to Paris her half the year. So we'd split the year, half in Paris, half on a on a desert island. So let's talk a little bit about this chestnut. Oh, yeah. you remember, do you remember that one? You talk in here about four givens of human existence, freedom, isolation, meaninglessness, and death. Um, do you mind just, wow, copper 1980. So I was born one year before this came out, 1979. Um, could you go through the four? And I'd love to hear it in, in, in the legend's own words, uh, the description of what they mean to you, each of these four givens. Oh, I wrote that book a long time ago. So we, we certainly everybody's dealing with death. Everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's frightened of it. Mm. I have worked with a lot of people with death anxiety. Um, and uh, so I, that, that's the one that I, I started with. And, uh, and I had my own experience with it. Uh, when you think of um, my death anxiety and leading all these groups and seeing so many patients die, um, my, my father died, my mother died, I was with them at the time. Um, so um, uh, I've been working with a lot of people who have uh, uh, a great deal of death anxiety. In fact, over the last couple of years, there's been an enormous number of people. I'm doing these single session consultations, and a significant number of them have to do with people who are loaded up with, with death anxiety. Uh, a formula has evolved for me which is that I think there seems to be a good relationship, a strong relationship rather, uh, but between the uh, amount of death anxiety uh, that you have and the amount of regrets you have about the way you've lived your life. And the people that I see very often who are way down with death anxiety have a lot of regrets about what they've done and what they've not done with their life. Uh, and there seems to be a, a re- relationship. So I often look at that very much and look at what's stopping them even now from trying to do what they really wanted to do in life. Um, and uh, I think that's certainly been very true for me. Uh, I, 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 the time I faced death the most by far was uh, when my wife died and right in front of me. And... Um, uh, I've been in grief about her death ever since the last year and a half. Um, but I know that one of the things that I did after my wife died was to uh, lie down in my bedroom and I sort of looked at all the books on my bookshelf, saw all the books I'd written and began reading them first time. 
I read them one by one, every single one of them. And it was very, very good therapy for me. I was, I was very pleased with those, uh, with those books and uh, a lot of pride in them. You, um, you, this is one you, you were reading, right? Yes, I was certainly one. Staring at the sun. Um, But it's a, it's a motif though in a lot of the books of stories as well. In fact, I came across one story, almost to my surprise, I looked at a story called Mama and the Meaning of Life, <laughs> and started to read that, and to my shock, uh, I came across a story, maybe second or third story, which was uh, Eight Advanced Lessons in the Therapy of Grief. And I had absolutely forgotten that I'd written that story. Uh, and I, I read that with tremendous interest. And it was a story about a very angry Stanford professor whose husband had died. And before that, up to long before that, her, her brother had died too. And we did a lot of arguing. Uh, and she'd sit there and say, oh, you're sitting there in that, like this, this nice pink striped shirt of yours. And nothing ever happens to you. You know, you, you don't know what I'm feeling. And and I'd argue with her and say, oh, I got to be depressed to work with a depressed patient. Do I or schizophrenic to work with a schizophrenic? So we'd be you know, almost yelling at each other after a while. But um, she got better. Took her well over a year, but I, I was able to help her. Although now, as I read that story and go back to our therapy, well, I think she was right. You know, I I, uh, I didn't know how she felt. Now I do. After having gone through this kind of numbness and and loss of the absolute center of my vitality, uh, so th- that was very very helpful to me. I'm rambling here. Where were we back? Let me go back to where you were with your question. What are the four givens of human existence? <laughs> no. but, but, you know, you were talking about death. You started with death. You know, if you get your violin going about death, you can go a long time on that topic. <laughs> the idea of meaning of life, that interests me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent some time teaching at Stanford in Vienna, and I... I I, I met uh, Victor Frankl, had a very, very long and strong encounter with Victor Frankl, and was very interested in his book about meaning, the meaning of life. Um, and uh, he was a tortured soul. Yeah. He was a tortured soul. He had gone through, just what he had gone through was so awful, uh, and he, 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 he was struggling all the time to recover and to make himself well-known. Mm-hmm. Uh, I him out to Stanford, uh, and he, he did some lectures in my department, but uh, he never felt very strong about himself. He always doubted himself a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was uh, he was tortured to the end. Mm-hmm. Someone who had lived through that, that horrific thing. Uh, let's see. Who else so have you been... I'm cur- I'm just curious, uh, you know, the other humanistic psychology legends. Who else did you cross paths with? Did you did you ever meet um, Carl Rogers? Oh yes, I met Carl Rogers and spent some time with him down in southern in Southern California. I like Carl Rogers very much. He's a fine man. Mm. Uh, maybe a little too much wine sometimes, but uh, a very fine man. I I admired him terribly, uh, and. Um, 
I spent some time. Uh, I met uh, well, John John Bowlby. John Bowlby and I switched offices when I went to Tavistock. He came to the U.S. and I had some overlap time with him. And he was a he was a fine man. And uh, Freud's daughter just down the street. Mm. And uh, Anna Freud was just down the street from the Tavistock. Wow. So I attended almost weekly her her seminars and got to know her a little bit. She was an amazing, amazing lady. Um, or Roger, well, let's see. Yeah, Did you ever meet Karen Horney? No, no. I I I would have liked to have known her. Me too. I, I liked her work very much. Uh, I I I uh, I think the two people I read with the most interest during my residency training were. were uh, were, were called were were Karen Horney and um, oh who else? My memory is flaking away, and it's Harry Harry Sack Sullivan. It takes oh, yeah. me about Harry Sack Sullivan was very important to me. He's a terrible writer, uh, but what he had to say was important. He he, so he and Karen Horney both introduced me to the interpersonal model, which is so absolutely crucial when, when you're doing group therapy. And you're you're working hard on how these eight people in this group relating to one another. So group therapy really is an interpersonal kind of approach to to therapy. So I think these are the. There's also a teacher who told stories at Hopkins, and I loved listening to the story. But I don't think I'm going to get this one for the next half hour. It'll, it'll come somewhere then. <laughs> no problem. Hey, did you ever meet Abraham Maslow? No, no, I never did. Or you like, did. You would like to, right? Did Did you like his work? Did you, you know, did it influence you at all? Um, I didn't. Re- he was not one of my favorite writers, but I did like his work when I read it. But I didn't reread it. Don't remember too much of it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, he wasn't a clinical psychologist. I don't think he ever did clinical work. But you know. Um, so the ideas of self-actualization, obviously, were were big in the '60s. Yeah, I had a good chairman at Hopkins when I was a resident named John Whitehorn, and another man that influenced me a great deal was Jerome Frank. Mm. Uh, Jerome Frank was a, a, a wonderful person. I was, he certainly introduced me to group therapy, and he had written a book about the group therapy early on. So I, I consider him my mentor in group therapy. And the residents all watch his group for the first three or four weeks of their residency. But I, I found it so interesting. I watched him for several months and he invited me to come in and co-lead the group with him. So I consider him my group, my group therapy teacher. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, so those, those are the people in the field I, I've known very well. So death, meaninglessness, um, then isolation. Isolation. You talk about existential isolation. Can you can you just talk a little about um, how what what is existential isolation? Well, you know, I don't have never used that term in later years. Tell me what I wrote about it. It's so long ago. You um you made a distinction between uh, having loneliness, uh, the kind of loneliness that you have from a partner, you know, uh, or not having a lot of partners around, but existential loneliness also feeling estranged from yourself. 
you know, like being uh, not really in touch with your your existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I I take that one very seriously too. Um, and Rollo May was uh, was my my favorite discussant about these issues and existential issues. He's a fine man. Mm. He's I mean he's he's uh, one of my here. I put him up there with you. <laughs> in terms of my heroes, um, you were there at Roland May's deathbed. I mean, that's incredible. Um, did, what was, did he say, what were his like last words? I mean, what, like, what was he, what was he, um, you know, what kind of state was he, was he a lot of, a lot of death anxiety? I wasn't speaking when I, when I was there, he was in, uh, he was in a coma. I was with his wife, uh, Georgia and, uh, he had had a, uh, he had had his, looks like he had a severe CVA mm. and, and, um, didn't speak. And, uh, I did my best to help Georgia get through this. Mm. She's still alive and, uh, is in a, uh, a residential, uh, establishment for the elderly in, in Palo Alto, very, very near me. I've seen her from time to time. Wow. Do you remember her? Do you remember your last conversation with Rollo? Do you remember one of your last conversations with him? What you guys talked about? Yeah. Too long ago. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. what I had for breakfast yesterday. So look, it's okay. No worries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and the other, I, I just think it's, look, you have to understand from my perspective, like, Roll May is my hero. You're my hero. Roll May is my hero. To hear about you two talking to me is a big deal. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, give me, give me gossip. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I do know that when I, I did something with Rollo May, that when I, when I saw him, I taped the sessions. Wow. And uh, you still have the tapes. Uh, that's another that's another story, but anyway, I taped the sessions because I had a long drive there. It was an hour drive, uh, and the next week on my way to there, I listened to the tape of a previous session. I thought that was a wonderful way to use therapy uh, because it really made it almost a continuous process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've asked patients to do that too, um, and I had all the tapes in a uh, in my studio. And went away to London or went away somewhere for a year sabbatical. I came back and somebody was doing some re- revision work that I'd asked them to do and the tapes were gone. So they were all, they're lost. So Did sorry, someone steal them? Don't know. Wow. Ended up in the dump. Who knows? Oh, maybe. So long ago. Anyway, that, that, that is really, truly incredible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I read your your book, A Matter of Death and Life, and it what a uh, profoundly touching book. I'm so glad that you wrote that with your wife. Uh, you had alternating chapters. Fresh in my mind, that one I can talk about. That one, that's your, that's 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 your latest. Um, uh, yeah, no, it it is a uh, profoundly touching. I mean, you, it's hard to read that book and not feel what you were feeling, and um, you know 
keeping like the tissues by by my the side of my you know as I'm reading your book. Um, I can't even imagine what it was to like to go to go through it. Um, you look, you and Marilyn, you had such a special special um, relationship for for so many years. Can, can you tell me a little bit about Marilyn? Can you tell me you know tell the listeners who haven't read the book just like tell us a little bit about you know what you know who she who she was. Well, she was this little girl who I crawled through the window of her house. Uh, she was uh, very, very bright. She was always valedictorian at every class she was in. She um, early on got interested. We we went to the same high school, junior high. She uh, got very interested in French studies. She spoke very, very good French. Um, and when she um, ran the school newspaper, um, Again, valedictorian of her high school class, too. Um, got a yeah, scholarship to go to Wellesley uh, in French studies. Uh, so she, she majored in, in French studies and German studies. Got her PhD in, in uh, comparative literature, French and German literature at Hopkins. Uh, all this done with a husband who, as she said many times, mispronounced every French word he Every game his way. I could not learn any other language. Um, uh, it was very important for me during those days to get all A's in college so I could get into medical school. There was a very strong 5% quota for Jewish, for Jewish boys uh, to get into medical school. So I, I, I had to get all A's. The only B I ever got in college was in German. I remember that. <laughs> I used to sing opera in German uh, back back in college. But anyway, that yes, is Marilyn, uh, yeah, yeah. Marilyn got her doctorate at Hopkins while I was getting my residency training there, and, and at that point, then we we went to the army. I, I taught. I I, uh, I was a, a psychiatrist in the army. She had a teaching job at the University of Hawaii for two years teaching French. When I came to Stanford, she was told they don't take back faculty wives, so she got a um, she got a job teaching French at uh, California State uh, University at Hayward. And then uh, they opened up a women's center a few years later. And they and she came over to take over the the women's center there, uh, um, so um, she was a little dissatisfied that she couldn't continue her her German and her French, but but she was very interested in in, in feminist studies as well, and uh, she did that till till the end of her life and uh, enjoyed that a great deal, and she eventually she started to write, uh, not not as soon as I did. Once I won a fellowship to a Bellagio, it was a Rockefeller fellowship. Mm. And what they did was they give American scholars a scholars from other countries as well. And it would give me a place for my family to live, an apartment, and then a separate writing studio. So uh, all, all those writers had this writing studio. I think it was two, two months or so. And, um, and Marilyn was talking to me. She was doing a, a study of women French witnesses of the French Revolution. And a lot of them had written about this. And she was telling me about that. And she was very interested in it. And I said to her, you know, you, you, you might have a book in that. 
Uh, and she got even more excited about that. So we we went down to the uh, to the manager's office whether there may be an extra writing studio that she could have as well. No writer's wife ever had a studio there. So and then we were informed by that by about the secretary there. No writers' wives don't get don't get uh, studios. But just then the head of Bellagio walked in there and he said, "Wait a minute, you know there is a treehouse just in the woods, ten minutes into the woods." And we took a walk outside, and there's a huge, huge tree with a little ladder going up it, and it had a very nice studio there. So she, she stayed the whole two months, hardly came down, and, and got started her, her first book. And after that one, she, she matched me book for book. Uh, she, she, she and I were always writing books, uh, I helping her to some extent with her books, her being much more helpful and a very, very good editor uh, with my with my work. This looks like and you he, both supported each other very much. Even as, when she died, she just just finished the book uh, that uh, as it came out shortly after that. Yeah. Oh, it was like an edited book, right? It was a book about uh, children of World War II. Mm, of yeah. children around the country and what their experiences had been in World War II, one in Norway, one in Paris, one in Italy, you know, and, and so she had long interviews with these children and what the war had meant to them. Oh, good. I'm really glad that came out. There was It was unclear in the book whether or not the person found the latest uh, draft of it on the laptop or not, and I was wondering about that. Yeah. Thanks. So good. Yeah. This is how much I care. This is how much I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I was on the edge of my seat about that. You know, when you read these kinds of books, you know, you, you feel like a certain kinship to people, you know, like you and your wife, you know, you, you let us into your life, you know, I guess that's the beauty of writing the kind of book you did. It'll live forever. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Sorry. Go on. No, I love, I love writing and I, 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 after a while, I never went very long without it, you know, and, and, and it's an interesting aspect of my life right now. Um, can I go into that a little bit? Oh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, about a year after, about the time that Marilyn got sick, I, I was very much aware of, of memory evaporation. You know, just like my having seen you once before, but remember so little about it, I the implicit part of it, the feelings I have toward these people there. So my, my memory was, uh, my memory was definitely getting into difficulty. And I decided I really didn't want to continue doing ongoing therapy then. I just couldn't trust my memory to remember what had happened earlier on. But I decided to try something else and I decided to do a single session consultation uh, uh, because I felt I could do that well. Uh, I've done, done a few of them, and I thought that I, I did have a, a real knack at doing that. So I put, in, I put a notice up on my Facebook page. I hardly ever go to my Facebook page or use it very much, but I put a notice up saying that I was offering these consultations, single-session consultations. And, and within 48 hours, I had about 500 letters by email, uh, and they have never stopped. You know, every day I... 40, 50 a day. Uh, so I'm, I'm still scheduled up every day of the week to see one consultation. And I began seeing these 
patients that I love doing that. And every, I'd say, five, ten, ten patients that I saw, a story began to emerge, a story that I thought would be very interesting for beginning therapists to teach them some fundamental aspect of therapy. So I've been doing that ever since Marilyn died. Uh, and um, I'm just right now at, at book length. Uh, but I can't bear the idea of stopping because what am I going to do if I'm not writing? It's, uh, I just feel absolutely lost at that. Mm -hmm. So I think I'll continue for a while and, and see, maybe maybe take out some of the weaker ones. So that's, that's been my life project since my wife died. That's that's great. I can't I can't wait to read that one as well. So, are you seeing new? You're not seeing new patients, correct? You've retired. Well, I see a patient every day, a new patient every day, except for one session. But I, you you write in your book uh, that there was a moment where I, I thought you said you decided you were you're going to retire when that that woman came to your house and she said that she didn't. So you but you so you didn't retire. <laughs> I'm going therapy, but but I I started doing these single session consultations. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I want to be consulted. I, I want a consultation by you. Um, that, that's wonderful. Um, I mean, what what advice do you have? You know, just think just think that you have hundreds of young psychotherapists listening to this podcast right now. I mean, what words of wisdom can you give everyone? Well, one of the first things I will say to them is, I've always said to my students, uh, one of the most important parts of your training is getting into therapy, uh, and perfectly maybe getting into therapy more than once. I take that very seriously. I see a lot of people uh, in, in these consultations who are therapists who have not been in therapy, and I will lean on them very heavily to, to do that and to, and to find a therapist for them. Also. I think it's very important to be in group therapy. You learn a whole different set of ideas and skills in group therapy. Uh, so I, I, I urge them to be in, in, in therapy groups as well. Um, and there are, are a good number of, I, I started, I didn't start, a couple of us started a therapy group of other therapists. There's no leader, uh, but that group went on for like 35 years. I stopped it just recently. That's not for me. Recently, when my wife died, I, I, I didn't want to continue. But I was in that group. It was a, quite a wonderful group. It, it met for an hour and a half. Uh, I think we met every other week. For, for all those years, attendance was fantastic. And it was quite supportive. And now there are a number of groups for therapists around the country. Um, and there's uh, somebody just a man named Weinberg just wrote a book about that, uh, and I've written him many times because he knows of lots of other groups for therapists around around the country. So I will try to get patients to uh, therapists who are who are who are patients to try and get into that group. You learn a lot of different things about yourself in a therapy group that you might not learn in. You know. Also started a group in in China many years ago. And so there's been a, a Yalom Chinese uh, Therapy uh, Institute there, and, and the group, uh, group uh, the man who's president of the American Group Therapy Association, uh, his name is Molon Lesh, a Canadian psychiatrist. He's he's been going over there to China once a year, and a very good psychologist named Ruth Ellen Jusselson, 
uh, a very good psychotherapist in Baltimore has been going there too. So that, that's another institute that I've had something to do with. Cool. Well, thank you for, for, for giving advice to uh, young people in the field. Uh, what is the best advice you found in your whole career on how to overcome the terror of death and fight against that despair? I mean, you've, you've tried so many different methods. You've written about so many different methods. Do you have like a favorite I'm going to have to repeat myself is, is try to live a life without regrets. Uh, try to be kind to everyone. Um, I, it's very, it's, it's part of me. It has been for a long time, uh, you know, to, to try to be helpful and kind to each person I talk to. Uh, each of these consultations, uh, I, I get very involved with what they're saying, do whatever I can to be helpful to them. Uh, it may be things if I feel like it, I feel they're going to be a good therapist. I certainly will tell them that uh, and say that to them. So, so that's, that's important to me. Do you have any regrets, any major regrets in your life? I don't think so. I don't. I don't think so. Amazing. I, I. I think that. I think I did the best I could. I think I always wanted to go to a, a, a better school, but where I came from, you know, I, I was lucky to get into GW uh, uh, at that point, and I was lucky to get into medical school since only five percent of the students could get in there, which meant that. I had to get all A's, and uh, I just studied my head off. So they had to take me uh, into into their own own school, uh, and I was in such a rush that I never had a fourth year of college. I, I took a third year of college. That's a regret. I would have liked to take another fourth year of college and take a lot of philosophy courses, which I had, but I was in such a rush. That was the what the rush was about was to capture Marilyn before she got away. Yeah. It was going out to Wellesley, it was going out with Harvard kids, and that was driving me nuts. That's the reason I had to transfer up to PU. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so then, then no regrets then. <laughs> no regrets to... <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you have children who are retired themselves now, right? And you have grandchildren do you do you what what sort of advice do you have to your grandchildren about how, how to live their life as um, regret free as you have? Well, I I love I love my grandchildren. Three of them were quite young, and they're they're caught in San Diego. They they've been there. The mother's a surgeon, uh, and the father uh, is my youngest son. The the grandchildren up here are uh, are just flourishing. They're doing quite well. One of them is uh, my daughter, who's a OBGYN, has a, has a daughter who's an OBGYN resident and has another who's in high tech. And uh, my, my son's son up here has, um, um, uh, he, he, has, he has a son who's, who's also in, 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 in high tech. Um, and um, my son has a, a, a Japanese uh, daughter who's getting a PhD in stem cell research 
at the University of Chicago now. So the grandchildren are are, are often, they're really going just fine. Beautiful. You're um you you you've a uh, you have something in your heart, right? You have a like a metal. No, what do you have? You have a pacemaker. What do you have? It's right here between my two fingers. Uh, I I feel it all the time. It always makes me aware of mortality, but it's been behaving quite well. Mm. You could you could go another ten years. I mean ten. You you know like why not? <laughs> Twenty years. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not enjoying life as much as I have in the past. I know, uh, I know. Not so much because of this part of me, but because I have terrible problems with my balance. Mm. Uh, happened a couple of years ago after some surgery I had on my knee, and I must have had a little bleed in my brain. But I, I have to use a walker to walk with, and uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, my balance is quite terrible. Uh, so that, that's that's the part of life I don't enjoy much. Watching tennis at Wimbledon stirred up a lot of longing because I used to love to play tennis. Uh, well, you've said that in your book. You say you're 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 quite serene about death. You don't, you know, is that where you're at right now? You don't you don't fear it like you used to in your youth. No, I, I don't fear it. I I think I may have written in the book this this thing that. Well, for one thing, I don't fear it. And the second thing is I'm not enjoying life a great deal. So those two things go together. Um, but what I, what I just say to you a minute ago, I was going to tell you something about, oh, uh, I was going to say something about, there, there are times that I was saying to Marilyn, Marilyn, my, my wife, I did a book on, cemeteries in the United States, unusual cemeteries. She and my son, who's a photographer, across the country. So I said to him around uh, a year or two ago, you know, maybe we should be buried in the same casket. I would like that. We would never be separated. And I she love says that idea. She, she says yeah. she's, she's traveled around the country, going to all these cemeteries. She can assure me there's no such thing as a casket for two people. <clears throat> but, but my, I will be buried next to her uh, but every once in a while <clears throat> when I think of death and I think of Marilyn the thought comes to my mind I don't I don't produce it it just comes to my mind oh I'll be joining Marilyn uh, I'll be joining Marilyn and unbelieving unbelievable to me but I suddenly feel a, a, a sort of a wave of comfort inside uh, it, it, it feels comfortable, and, and I feel warm and kindly at that point. <clears throat> even though, even though my my brain, my intellect tells me this is totally absurd. Uh, I'm not going to be joining Marilyn. Marilyn doesn't exist any longer. You know, she's simply bones at this point. And how can I possibly be? But even so, <clears throat> it helps me understand so clearly what religions have had to offer to mankind since the beginning of time. You know, there's some sort of sense that we won't vanish, that we'll somehow we'll continue, and we'll continue in some sort of after existence. And, uh, and there's part of my brain, uh, this implicit part of my brain that, that buys into that, I guess, and I get comforted when I think of Merle. Well, you never know. 
<laughs> you never know in what capacity your consciousness and her consciousness will still yeah. will. You know, don't don't count it out is all I'm saying. <laughs> oh man, I'll, I'll end here. I'll end on a quote. You said, "For many years, I have been convinced that there is a positive correlation between death anxiety and the sense of unlived life. In other words, the more unlived your life, the greater your death anxiety." It seems to me like you've really lived a f- extremely full, full and rich life with very few regrets. Just want to thank you so much for making such an incredible impact on so many of us in the field and for me personally. And it was a real honor to chat with you today. Thank you for this really lively conversation we've had. Appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.